Well, Margie and I are thankful for the opportunity to be with you tonight and tomorrow. And uh, it's exciting for me because Margie's with me this time. She doesn't always travel with me, but I'm glad that she's here. And we're here to serve you. So we're delighted to converse and talk in between sessions. Don't feel like you have to give us a break. Uh, we're happy to talk and interact with uh, either the things I'm teaching or things we've written, uh, whatever. So we're happy to interact with those things. I also want, always want to introduce my family because I don't want you to be asking yourself, uh, does this man have a family? Does he have any children? Uh, we have uh, three adult children, nine grandchildren, so we've been very blessed to have a, a, a unique situation of having all of our grandchildren and children living nearby. So we're, they're all within five miles. So we spend a lot of time with our kids and our grandkids and really have a sense of knowing them as people. So we're very thankful for that. Uh, here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to talk about... Uh, the importance of the heart in this first session. The next session, we'll talk about the family. Uh, what is a family? And I'll give you a way of looking at family that I think is really transforming if you get a hold of it. And then we'll, in the uh, afternoon, we'll talk about husbands and wives and, and the callings that God has given us as husbands and the callings God has given us as wives, the ways that there are unique callings that God has given us. And uh, I've, I've sought to reduce those callings to a single word. So we'll talk about uh, husbands loving their wives, wives respecting their husbands. In the morning tomorrow, we'll talk about children obeying their parents. Uh, and uh, then we'll have a Q&A time tomorrow as well. So Margie and I are happy to interact with you and thankful for the opportunity to be with you. Of course, uh, uh, we want to start with the heart. And those of you who are familiar with Shepherding a Child's Heart know that's a passion for us and something we've been very focused on. We want to look, think about the heart and the importance of the heart because the heart is the wellspring of life. We live out of our hearts. All the hopes, the dreams, the aspiration of the person reside within the heart, and from the heart they set the course of life. And, and we have to provide some correction to our thinking if we're going to think about the heart biblically because we tend to think of the heart in our culture. We use the term heart to describe emotions. Uh, you know, so we think of the heart as the emotional part of us, the tender part, the sensitive part. We think of the mind as the cool, calculating, reasoning part. The Bible does not use the word heart in that way. What the scriptures recognize is that we are, we are corporeal beings. We, are, we, we, we have bodies. We're, not dis, we're never disembodied spirit. Even in heaven one day, glorified, we will have bodies like Christ's glorified body. Uh, but you know that you are more than your body that there's a person in there. there. There's a choosing, thinking, interacting person. And the Bible, so the Bible recognizes there's this, we're, we're material beings, but there's also an immaterial part of us that, that is, is, uh, is, is, Im, is immortal. And, and uh, so the scriptures uh, talk about that in different ways. It, it uses the word spirit, soul, inner man, innermost being. All those words describe that non-material part of us. And I think of the heart as a basket that carries all those things in it. Uh, and, and so that many of the things that, uh, the, the heart is really the center core of your being. Proverbs 4 captures the importance of the heart. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Uh, boy, that says it. We live out of our hearts. If you trace the stream of life back to its source, the fountainhead is the heart. We live from our hearts. And, and if we think about the, the, the things that the heart superintends, and this is just, these are suggestive categories because we could talk 
so extensively about this. There are almost 800 passages in the Bible that talk about the heart and the significance of the heart and the importance of the heart. But just to demonstrate that the heart is not just a seat of emotions. Uh, things, if we think about the, the classical definition of the person, mind, emotions, will, uh, things we think of as cognitive activities in the scripture are activities of the heart. Uh, we think with our hearts. God flooded the world because he saw the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. We remember with our hearts. Moses says, remember these words of mine, fix them in your hearts and in your minds. We discern with our hearts. The discerning heart acquires knowledge. We, we see with our hearts. Uh, Pastor prayed that way a moment ago, that the eyes of our heart would be opened, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. We meditate with our hearts. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, did I mention we discern with our hearts? The discerning heart acquires knowledge. Uh, we we meditate we we with our hearts. We ponder with our hearts. Mary takes these things she hears of Jesus and she ponders them in her heart. Now all of those things we think of as cognitive activities. The Bible tells us they're activities of the heart. So whatever we make of the mind and the mind's ability to collate and organize information and recall information, the course of thought is set by the heart. And of course, things we think of as emotional activities flow from the heart. We love God and others with the heart. Uh, we hate with our hearts. Remember uh, David when he's coming into this city of God, dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, and his wife looks at him. She despised him in her heart. We hate with our hearts. We grieve with our hearts. God says to Eli the priest, You're, you've not restrained your sons. You've allowed them to abuse my people and desecrate my sacrifices. All of your sons will fill your heart with grief and your eyes with tears. We lust with our hearts. The warning in Proverbs 6 about the wayward woman is do not lust in your heart after her beauty. All those are activities of the heart. Things we think of as, as volitional activities, activities of the will. The Bible attributes to the heart. Everyone should give what he's decided in his heart to give. Jesus says, for the Lord, or Paul says, for the Lord loves the cheerful giver. We repent with our hearts. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Uh, Joel 2, uh, rend your hearts and not your garments and return unto the Lord. We believe with our hearts. Romans 10, it's with the heart that man believes and is saved. Uh, we turn to God or away from God in our hearts. Margie and I were just reading this morning, Deuteronomy, that passage that of warning, about, uh, turning away from God, because he says, if you turn away from me, uh, I'll, bring all these, uh, I'll bring all these curses of the covenant upon you. If you turn to me, I'll bring all the blessings of the covenant to you. So here we have a classical way of understanding the person, the mind, emotions, will. Uh, all of those activities are activities of the heart. The heart is the wellspring of life. And, and, and I, I, there's so much more that could be said about the importance of the heart. I mean, think about passages like Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful, he says, above all things. Who can know it? Uh, we can't trust our hearts. Your heart will lie to you. My heart has been telling me I need a new pickup truck. And my wife tells me that my heart is lying to me. Uh, see, we, we, our hearts will not tell us the truth. One of the worst pieces of advice you could give is just follow your heart. Because my heart is unreliable. Uh, and the heart is so basic. You know, Ezekiel talks about idolatry. It talks about uh, the heart is the seat of idolatry. The heart is the place where idols are enthroned and, and, uh, and lusted after. 
So now these have tremendous implications for family living because if you, if you think about, about these things and, and understanding behavior, uh, it's, these, it's these activities of the heart that push and pull behavior. Behavior is always motivated and it's always motivated by what's going on inside. It never springs just from the circumstances or people. Behavior is driven by what's going on inside. And of course, these are great areas in which to ask questions and to think about, uh, even as we think about ourselves. You know, what am, we could ask ourselves, what am I loving in this situation? What am I fearing in this situation? What, is, what am I grieving over? What is, what, is, what is the idol of the heart in this or that situation? How might my heart be being deceived? Uh, profound areas of question uh, to think about, and of course, uh, if, as we're raising kids, great areas in which to develop questions for our children. And of course, the, it's a great area of Bible study for the home to, to even develop a heart notebook where you, you begin to organize some of the teaching and the Word of God about the heart and the activities of the heart and what the heart does. Well, the importance of the heart is one of those major themes that we find everywhere in the Scripture. Throughout the Word of God, we're confronted with the importance of the heart. It's, it's hard to overstate it. If we were just going to look at Old Testament passages about the heart, we would run out of passages this weekend before we ran out of, uh, we'd run out of time, excuse me, before we ran out of passages, if that's all we were to do. Because there's so many passages, almost 700 passages in the Bible that talk to us about the importance of the heart. Some of them are familiar to us. This one you probably remember. Remember Samuel was sent to anoint a new king over Israel, and uh, he goes to the house of Jesse and out to, the, to, the, uh, to offer sacrifices, and during the course of things, the sons of Jesse are brought before Samuel the prophet. He's waiting for a word from God about whom he should anoint. And God, uh, this first young man comes into his presence. He's tall, he's handsome, he looks... He looks regal. He looks like the kind of person people would follow into battle. Samuel thinks this must be the man. And God speaks to Samuel. Do you remember those words? He says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Man does not look at the things God looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What is God concerned about? See, God's concern is the heart. God's concern is not just that which is observable, and, and uh, by others, but God is concerned with what's going on inside. And that truth we find again and again throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses asks this great question. He says, now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? What a great question. What does God want? What does God ask for? But that you fear the Lord your God and walk in his ways and love him and serve him with all your heart. And with all your soul, what does God want? He wants wholehearted service to him, wholehearted devotion to him. When David is giving the kingdom to his son, Solomon, who's following him as king, and he's giving the kind of fatherly advice one would expect a father to give to his son, especially a father who had, who had held that, that office, he says, Now you, Solomon, my son, acknowledge the God of your fathers and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind for the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. God is a searcher of hearts 
even down to the motives for our thoughts. And when, when uh, the, the uh, temple was being dedicated, and we have this wonderful prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8, and toward the end of that prayer, Solomon prays these words. He says, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us or forsake us. May he turn our hearts toward him to walk in his ways and remember his commandments and his statutes. You see, the heart, the importance of the heart is impossible to overstate. And throughout the scriptures, we find one of the threads of truth woven throughout the fabric of the word of God is the importance of the heart uh, because we live out of our hearts. And of course, it's an important theme in the ministry of Christ. I mean, think about the Sermon on the Mount, that larger sermon we have of Christ. The heart is one of the reoccurring themes through that sermon. Uh, it's there in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And later when he talks about treasure, he says, whatever your treasure owns your heart where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And when Jesus applies the law in the Sermon on the Mount, he applies the law in terms of the heart. So he says, you think of murder as killing someone and being caught with all the evidence against you, but Jesus says you can commit murder without shedding any blood. If you hate your brother in your heart, if in your heart you say, Reka, you fool, if you despise your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Now, do you see what Jesus is doing with the law? He's taking the application of the law. He's not just making the application out here in what is external, behavioral, observable. He, make, he takes it inside. And he says, when I give my heart to that which God forbids, I've broken the law of God. I, he, remember, he does the same thing with adultery. He says, you can commit adultery from across the room. If you look at a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery with her already. Where? In your heart. Do you see what Jesus is saying? I mean, and that, that, that emphasis on the importance of the heart, it, we find throughout the ministry of Christ, this truth that we live out of our hearts. You know, that's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And what I mean to to, to to convey with this little graphic is that whatever we see in behavior has its origin in the heart. You cannot understand behavior in a biblical vision without reference to the heart because behavior displays the heart. The heart is seen in our behavior choices. Now, in, in uh, Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 15 and Mark 7, we have two passages that uh, are parallel passages, and the, the background of this story is this. Uh, the Pharisees have come to Jesus, and they're bringing accusations against the disciples. They're saying, your disciples have defiled themselves because they've eaten without ceremonial washing. Therefore, they're defiled through what they have eaten. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. I mean, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, these people, these Pharisees, they honor me with their lips. Their lips are saying God-honoring words, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are just rules made up by men. 
And Jesus rebukes them so forcibly. <coughs> Excuse me, you get a sense of it more in the, in the Mark, uh, Matthew passage than in the Mark passage, but he rebukes them so forcibly that the disciples are actually shocked by the forcefulness of, of his rebuke. After the Pharisees have gone and the dust has settled, the disciples come to Jesus and Peter, as the spokesman, he says, Lord, connect the dots for us. Help us to understand this teaching. Jesus says these words. He says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? Because it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In other words, you're not defiled by what you eat. What you eat ultimately passes through you. But he goes on and he says, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Now, there's a profound statement there because Jesus identifies behavioral things that we see in our homes. And he says they have their origin in the heart. They're reflecting what's going on in the heart. I mean, if you think about it, do you ever see any envy at your house? One of our kids was gone overnight. He was gone to visit a friend. He came home the next day. He was only home for five minutes when he announced, I get to have ice cream today. I said, well, why do you think you should have ice cream today? You guys had ice cream last night when I was gone. Now, I couldn't believe it. This kid came home. He checks the box of ice cream to see if any ice cream was missing. <laughs> and he asserted his right to ice cream. Now, they never come home and say, you guys had ice cream last night. Good for you. I'm so happy for you. Was it good? Did you enjoy it? I hope you ate it all. Good for you. No, say, I get ice cream today. You had ice cream last night. We see that kind of envy in children, don't we? Of course, we don't only see it in children, do we? We see it in adults sometimes. Yeah, it's easy for you. You get to go to work all day. I've got to stay at home all day with these kids. You know, uh, envy statements. We are very familiar statements uh, in our families, or, or we see greediness uh, in our in our children. Uh, and we see greediness in ourselves, don't we? Uh, when I was pastoring, my grandsons used to always come to see me after I was done preaching. And uh, they wanted to go to my office with me. Now, they didn't want to go to my office with me to pray about my wonderful sermon. The reason they wanted to go to my office is I had this large jar of M&Ms in my office, and they wanted some M&Ms. And you know what children are like. I mean, there was never a time when one of those little boys came in and took one M&M. You know what they did. They buried their hand in the jar. They took as many as their grubby little hands would hold. They put them in their pockets and tried to make another pass at it. <laughs> before I put the lid on. And we see that, this stuff in children, and, and we see it in ourselves too, don't we? Uh, ways that we overindulge ourselves and uh, are always watching out for ourselves. Or uh, slander. Uh, sometimes we slander one another. We, uh, my children used to come saying, Daddy, brother's not being nice to me. And I would say to them, now help me understand why you're telling me this. Would you like for us to pray for your brother? Well, we could do that. We could pray for him. I'm sure he'd appreciate our prayers. 
You're not trying to get him in trouble, are you? You wouldn't do that. But it's so easy to, to cast aspersions on one another. Or uh, we see uh, folly. Sometimes you see folly in little children. You, know, you have a little baby. You're trying to change this baby's diaper. And he's saying to you without using words, you will not change my diaper. You're going to discover I have six arms, four legs. I can roll like I'm on a rotisserie. You will not change me. Uh, that kind of folly is bound up in the heart. And it's not just in the hearts of children. It's in the hearts of adults, too, where we do foolish things that are, are done in, in, in fits of pique and anger that, that afterwards we look at and we think, what a silly thing for me to do. I remember reading a story by Walter Wangren about leaving his house in the night, in the, in the cold, in the winter, and he was angry with his wife, and he wanted to slam the door for extra drama as he slammed out of the house and caught his coat in the door. Now the door's locked. He doesn't have a key, <laughs> and his coat's in. It's cold out, and all the drama has been lost on his wife. She didn't even hear it. And of course, he was too proud at that moment to knock on the door because she would have been laughing at him. He would have been laughing at her. It could have broken the ice, but instead he walked around without a coat for hours and freezing, but too proud to come back. I mean, we see that kind of stuff in ourselves. and We see it in our children. Where does it come from? See, Jesus talks to us about that in this passage. It comes from within. It comes from the heart. Or even deceit. It's so easy to deceive one another, even with words that are technically true. For a procrastinator like me, my wife may say, did you remember to make that call? Yeah, I remembered. Uh, what did he say? Well, I didn't get through. I just left a message on his machine. You know, well, you know, when she asked me, did I remember, she's not asking me, you know, uh, did I ever, you know, think about making that call? She's asked me, was I successful in making it? But my first answer to her was an answer that was designed to put her off with a positive answer that was actually not fully true. Our kids do that too, don't they? You say to your eight-year-old, did you remember to brush your teeth? He says, yes, I remembered. You look at his toothbrush. This brush has not been wet for three days. <laughs> I thought you said you brushed your teeth. You didn't ask me if I brushed them. You asked if I remembered. Yes, I remembered. I didn't brush them. You know, these children are all attorneys, you know. Now, all these things, Jesus says, come from within. They come from the heart. No wonder Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is a wellspring of life. Now, I, I want to think about this passage in Luke chapter 6 with you, because in Luke 6, we have this uh, wonderful analogy of a tree that Jesus gives it's one of those very elegant illustrations of Christ, so simple, so profound. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Now, you understand these words, don't you? I mean, the test of the tree is the quality of the fruit. If it's good fruit, it's a good tree. Bad fruit, it's a bad tree. You can tell what kind of a tree it is by the fruit. 
I want you to imagine this illustration with me. Imagine with me I have an apple tree at our home in Pennsylvania. Blossoms beautifully in the spring, but when these apples go to maturity, they can't be eaten. They're rotten apples. And so uh, every year Margie comes to me. She says, Ted, can't you fix this tree? And, and I try various things. I, I loosen the soil around the tree. I fertilize it. I spray it. I prune the branches. But we still have these rotten apples. So one day I'm home on a Saturday. I say, honey, today I'm going to fix the apple tree. So I go out there with a ladder, take all the rotten apples off the tree, put them in the compost pile. I go to the orchard. I buy three boxes of his finest apples, take them up to my tree. I shine them over the rags so they're nice and shiny. I get some string, and I hang them on the tree with string. So I decorate this tree with apples. Now, when I'm done, it looks beautiful. Shiny, crisp, juicy apples, symmetrically distributed all over the tree. <laughs> and I go in and get Margie. I say, honey, I have a surprise for you. You know, close your eyes. Lead her to the window that overlooks the tree. Okay, open your eyes. Ta-da, she looks. I mean, this tree looks beautiful. All these, these branches are covered with these wonderful apples. The apples are, the branches are bowed under the weight of these apples. I mean, the tree looks lovely. Now, she goes out and she examines it. She discovers they're all hanging by monofilament nylon. Now, now how would she respond to me? She would say, you're a nutcase. This is why we don't like to leave you alone for long periods of time. We can never tell what you might do. I didn't want you to hang apples on the tree. Honey, I wanted a tree that bears apples. But think about how great the, the temptation is to try to hang apples on the tree. I mean, we do it with our children. Tell your sister you're sorry. Sorry. Could you smile at your sister when you're saying, sorry, okay, you can go play. <laughs> now, we've just hung an apple on the tree, haven't we? And, and you know, we do that with one another, too. We, 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 we manipulate each other. I mean, there's so many ways we can hang apples on the tree. You know, with little kids, we bribe them. We bribe them with stickers. You know, little children, preschoolers, you can bribe them with stickers. You can't bribe an eight-year-old with stickers. He isn't going to do anything for a sticker. Have you ever notice that there's bribery inflation? You know, they... <laughs> The bribes have to get bigger and bigger, you know, as kids get older and older. But, you know, we, we but, you know, and, and even as, as adults, we bribe each other. You know, if you would do this for me, then I would do that for you. We're, we're bribing one another, or, or we, we heap one another with shame and, and, and guilt. You know, with those times we're trying to do something, you know, we're, we're, trying to do something our spouse wants, has been wanting us to do, and we're trying to get it done, and, and the, it's run out of time, and she says, you know, we might as well just forget it now, and, you know, it's not enough time to do it. And this, see, this is why I never do these things, you know, because you always say we might as well forget it. This is why, you know, we end up uh, shaming one another for uh, the ways that we interrupt those, uh, those things, or we might shame our kids, you know, we do something fun with the kids, and the kids are misbehaving. This is why we never do anything fun. It's because the way you kids act. Or we might heap guilt on one another. Or we heap guilt sometimes on our children. You know, it just makes me so sad when I see the way you kids fight over your toys. I have no joy in my life. I mean, what can I be happy about when my kids are home fighting over their toys? You know, your mother and I used to talk about how wonderful it would be to have children. <laughs> we had no idea what it would be like. See, we can manipulate kids with guilt. We can manipulate one another with guilt. 
you know, if, if, if you weren't always so impatient, then I wouldn't be so upset all the time. And, you know, so we're, we're heaping guilt and blame shifting with one another. Or, you know, we might, uh, we might even bring Jesus into it. We do this with our kids. You know, Jesus can see right into the family room. What do you think Jesus thinks the way you guys fight over your toys? Now, that's a, not a bad question if you ask it for the right reason. But you know you can ask that question without having a real evangelical objective. <laughs> you know, you're just rolling out the heavy artillery. You know, they, they haven't been listening to me all day. Let's lob Jesus at them this afternoon. Maybe that'll fix them. Or we do the same kind of thing, just more subtly with our kids. You know, when you, uh, one of the parent is, parent is being impatient with the kids, and we walk by a uh, nice Christ-like response there. You know, we're, we're, we're heaping guilt and, and uh, poking at each other. Or, or we might threaten our children. Or sometimes we threaten one another. You know, we, we, we give each other the cold shoulder. You know, the... The, the, the kind of thing, you know, where the wife, the, the husband and wife agree. Okay, honey, I want you to be home at 7 o'clock, you know, so we can, have, we can have a family meal together and we can have family worship together. And it works out. He's getting home on time for a while, and then one that he doesn't show up on time. You try to call him. He's not answering his phone. He eventually comes home an hour and a half late, comes walking in. Hi, honey, how was your day? Fine. Is there anything to eat? We ate hours ago. Is anything wrong? No. You sure nothing's wrong? No, nothing's wrong. Well, usually you're more talkative. If I have anything to say, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> Honey, you sure nothing's wrong? Well, if you don't know what's wrong, I'm not going to tell you. You know, it's, it's a way of, you know, threatening each other, giving each other the cold shoulder. We do it with kids. You know, we threaten our kids. You know, those nights you put the kids to bed several times. You put them to bed, you, you hear them in the room, they're running, they're jumping, they're diving into each other's beds. You go and quiet them down. Now look, we had a nice night tonight, we read a story, we played a game. You each have already gotten a drink twice, I don't want to hear another sound. So you go back to try to enjoy a little conversation with one another and talk over your day and you hear the kids again, back to their room. What are you doing in your brother's bed? I told you not to get up. I didn't get up. How'd you get in your brother's bed? I went over the dresser, over the windowsill. My feet never touched the floor. <laughs> so you quiet them down another time. You go back to try to enjoy your conversation, and you hear the kids again. And you find yourself hollering threats in their direction. You don't even want to know what will happen if I come to that room one more time. But it'll be messy, and it might be on the news. <laughs> Now, and all those are ways of manipulating the behavior. They're, they're ways of trying to hang apples on the tree. And if you think about that tree, and those apples are hang on the tree with string, what's going to happen to those apples over time? They're going to rot, aren't they? Why are they going to rot? They're not sustained by the life of the tree. See, Real change doesn't happen just by fixing external behavior. Real change is systemic. It happens from the inside out. And the, the, the most intractable sins that we struggle with in our Christian walk are tied to idols of the heart. They're tied to things that are going on inside that are pushing and pulling our, our behavior. And our tendency is to try to 
address the behavior without dealing with those, with those idols of the heart. It's really, uh, we could extend this diagram in this way, that uh, if you think about it, it's out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, the ungodly behavior begins with heart attitudes that are seen in the behavior. And godly behavior would begin with heart attitudes that are seen in the behavior. Now, a common problem in families, two children, one toy, the kid's fighting over the toy. Uh, you, we used to have this problem with our kids. We used to say, okay, who had it first? Now, if you think about it, where in the Bible does it say the person that had it first is absolved of any responsibility to share? It's not really a biblical idea, but we would say who had it first. But if you think about it, if I've got two kids fighting over the toy, what is the hard attitude behind the fight over the toy? At the very least, we would have to say there's love of self going on there, right? That's why they're fighting over the toys, because of love of self. One kid who has the toy is saying, in effect, to his sibling, I know you've been waiting to play with this. You would like to play with it, but I had it first. And, and, I, and in fact, I was almost done with it. But now, now that I know you want it, you have renewed my interest in this toy. <laughs> and the other child is in, is, in effect, saying, I know there are a hundred other toys I could play with, but the only toy in the entire house I'm interested in is the one that you have and I will do whatever I need to do to get it from you. So, and our temptation is to isolate behavior and try to produce behavioral change. And we even do this in our own Christian walk. We look at things that we do and say, and we think, I've got to stop being so angry. I've got to stop being so cutting with the way I speak. I've got to stop being so sharp with my tongue. But we can't deal with it on that level. It's because we're, we're trying to deal with it just simply on the level of behavior. And that behavior is driven by heart attitudes. And there are so many things we can do to manipulate the behavior of, 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 of our, in our family. We had a, a man, I was teaching this material in the church at home, and a man came to me, he said, we had a, I got so sorry, he said, I got so tired of my kids saying shut up again. I told them from now on when you say shut up, you got to put a dollar in this jar. He started finding them a dollar every time they said, shut up. I said, well, what happened? He said, you wouldn't believe it. Within two weeks, we had $100. <laughs> I said, $100? That's a lot of money. He said, yeah. He said, my wife and I were putting it in, too. <laughs> I said, what happened after that? Well, a couple weeks passed. No one was saying, shut up anymore. I thought we'd learned our lesson. And uh, so Friday night came along. We wanted to do something fun with the kids. Money's always tight. I remember that hundred bucks. Went out for pizza, movie after the pizza, ice cream after the movie. Blew the hundred dollars. So what happened after that? He said, you wouldn't believe it. Within two weeks, they were saying, shut up again. I said, I wouldn't believe it if you told me they weren't. See, that, that change was like hanging an apple on the tree. It cannot be sustained because it's not organic. See, we... What, what, we want to, what we want to do, both with, with ourselves, within our own Christian walk, but also in our family life, is see change that comes from the inside out, the change that comes from understanding those attitudes of heart. Because if you think about it, if the fight over the toy is motivated by love of self, I will never produce lasting change just simply by trying to change the behavior. I won't do that when I'm managing my kids. I won't do that when I'm even trying to manage my own life and say, okay, I'm going to stop being so snippy with my words. I'll never deal with it on that level because the snippiness with my words is a tie to heart attitudes. 
And it's got to be repented of at the heart if true change and lasting change is going to take place. Now, if you think about this, if I never challenge the love of self behind the fight over the toy, I manipulate behavior, I get my kids to share without challenging the love of self behind the fight to begin with, what do we call that kind of change? Well, let me ask you this question. Is it commendable to do the right thing even when I have wrong motives? Isn't this what Jesus condemned in the Pharisees? He says, you Pharisees are like tombs that are clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. You're like cups, Jesus says, that are clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. And in between those statements, Jesus says these words, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will be clean. He's giving us ordered steps here. The matter of first importance is what's going on inside. Now, we're in this wonderful situation as Christians. We have tremendous resources for understanding human motivation. God's Word gives us all these motivational terms, and these are terms from the Word of God, and I have two contrasting lists, ungodly attitudes of heart and godly attitudes of heart. Ungodly attitudes of heart, for example, like, like revenge, uh, rather than entrusting myself to God. Do you ever see any revenge behavior at your house? Did you ever hear these words? He hit me first. He deserted. He had it coming. But if you think about it, even, even between a husband and a wife, giving my spouse the silent treatment because I miffed with them is a way of taking revenge, isn't it? Rather than entrusting myself to God, as Jesus did. First Peter 2 says, when he was persecuted, he did not retaliate. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The, or we see our, 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 ourselves caught up with the fear of man rather than the fear of the Lord. So concerned with what will people think of me if? How, much is, how, how often is what will people think of me the motivation for things that you do and say? or pride rather than humility. I think of an illustration of a little uh, eight-year-old playing checkers with his six-year-old sister. And the game gets to the point where he realizes he cannot possibly win this game. She's going to beat him. And he says, checkers is boring. I hate this game. Flips the checkerboard over and goes out of the room. What's going on with this kid? I mean, it's pride. Bad enough to lose the game. To lose your sister who's two years younger than you, that's a fate worse than death. <laughs> or we see... Uh, in ourselves and in our children, compulsive love of self rather than love for others. Did you ever have a time when you hid that last piece of pie? You put it someplace in the back of the refrigerator where no one would look. And then you thought it was safe there. You went to find your piece of pie and someone had taken it. Who took my piece of pie? But they were that compulsive self-love motivating me to hide that piece of pie for later. Or self-preservation, rather than being willing to lay down my life. It's so easy, even for us as husbands, to manage our schedules in such a way that we avoid certain tasks that our wives would like us to help them with. Oh, honey, I'd love to help you with the kids today, but I've got to stay over and work a little late. Uh, covetousness, rather than generosity. Or hatred, uh, envy, rather than desire for the good of others. Or hatred, rather than love. 
or anger rather than peacemaking. Do you ever have a time you're trying to reconcile a couple of children and one child will not be reconciled? He's sitting there, he's retaining his anger. He will not be reconciled. But that happens with us as adults too, doesn't it? One spouse saying, I'm sorry, honey. We need to pray. We need to, to forgive one another. We need to move on. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And the other spouse refusing to forgive, refusing to relent, wanting to have you keep you in that place a little longer as the object of my anger and disappointment. All these things are heart-driven. Or Paul talks about fear and anxiety in Philippians 2 rather than peace and contentment, or rebellion rather than submission. All these are the things that push and pull us and push and pull our behavior. And we could go on, I mean, thinking about idols of the heart, I mean, think about the idols of the heart that can rule family life, things like success. Because, you know, maybe business success is an idol for someone in this room. And you don't have time for your family or for your callings in the church because you've, you've made lifestyle choices that require you to be upwardly mobile and your job is your life. It's where you find your sense of identity. It's where you find pleasure and satisfaction. You actually are more fulfilled at work than you are at home. So you spend a lot of time at work because that's more fulfilling for you. And, and you know, the greatest problems with idolatry, are not, they're not the idols that are external, it's the internal idolatry. Because an idol is just a substitute for God. An idol is something we turn to for a sense of well-being, something we think will bring us joy and happiness and some state of blessedness. Now, we would never say that. We would say, Jesus is all I need, Jesus is all I love, and Jesus is what I live for. But in practice, we don't always live that way. We know that there are many things that have the capacity to rob us of our joy and to, to bring us sorrow and even despair. Think of the idolatry that can be involved in wanting to have successful children. You can wear yourselves out to give them every possible advantage and for their development and even, and even uh, get upset with them when they don't take full advantage of the opportunities that you've worked so hard to provide. Sometimes parents can even have a sense of identity that is bound up with their children and the success of their children. So their children's success becomes so important to mom and dad because my sense of identity is tied to their success. Or we can think of Entertainment is one of those idols in our culture. I mean, more money is spent on entertainment in our culture than any culture in, in, the, in human history. People organize their lives around entertainment. It's why we have children that are addicted to video games and to their phones and to social media. Or ministry can be an idol. A pastor's entire sense of identity can be, can be drawn from his from his ministries and the success of the church. Or maybe you're the pastor's right-hand man, and, and, or maybe you have a counseling ministry, but if you're honest, you're, the, what's so important about this ministry for you is being needed by other people. Or possessions can be an idol. I mean, that can be true with our children, it can be true with us as adults, I mean, with kids, it's smaller stuff with dad it might be his his pickup truck his house his garden his his success or mom it might be 
you know, household management skills, having cakes that never go flat, and children that always look like they stepped out of a magazine, or pleasure and sensuality, just the rush of excitement, going new places, doing new things, always uh, looking for exciting, heart-throbbing, adrenaline-pumping things to do. We see that in children. Sometimes with adults, it's a different kind of pleasure-seeking, you know, we the latest gadget, the latest cell phone, and your wife knows as soon as you get a computer upgrade or a new phone, she's gonna be a widow for the next three days while you load apps on this thing and, and explore all of its capabilities. Or we could think of the fear of man or the flip side of that, the desire to be approved by others. This is so seductive because we usually don't know what people think of us, but we, we, we're motivated by what we imagine they think of us. I remember once a mom that I knew who had homeschooled her kids, and one of her kids ended up in a public high school, and in the public high school, he got in trouble in school. And her concern was not just that he was in trouble, how can I help my son? Her concern was, I am known in this community as an advocate of homeschooling, and my son is making me look bad. That's idolatry. Or family. Having a family that's nice and enjoys one another and treats one another with respect, or we can think of pride in performance. Some children are driven by performance idolatry. Parents even feed that idolatry, making sacrifices that should never be made so for their children to develop performance skills that they imagine will bring them prosperity some point in the future. I remember being in a church and seeing this little boy come into the church dressed in a baseball uniform. I thought, what a strange thing to wear to church. But I caught on because at a quarter of 12, this family got up and they slipped out of the church. Now, you know what's going on here. There's a game, it starts at noon. If you're late for the game, the coach won't let you play. Now, this pastor is preaching his heart out. He's proclaiming God's word for God's people on God's holy day. I mean, we do believe in the Ten Commandments, don't we? Or do we believe in the Nine Commandments? Uh, it's God's day. He's pouring out his heart, he's preaching sermon. He's making application of God's word. And just at that moment of application, this family slips out of the church. They have another worship service to go to. And you can't be late for that one. Now, if this little guy ever concludes, the life that is truly life is found in knowing God. How's he going to get there? It'll be in spite of, not because of, the example of his parents. It's so easy for us to serve those idols, and even make our children's idols work for them, or activities and accomplishment. I mean, you talk to some families, and all they want to talk to you about is all the things their kids are doing and how successful they are at doing these things. But you don't hear conversations about spiritual things in those homes. Or health and fitness. I mean, we're part of a culture that spends more money on health and fitness. I mean, we have we, we build shrines to health and fitness. They're called spas and exercise clubs. And perhaps there are people here who are very religious in your commitment to health and fitness. You, your diet regimens that you're very strict with or your exercise regimens you're very strict with. But when it comes to Bible reading and prayer, not so much. You see, all these things can be idols. And maybe someone's asking the question, what's wrong with these things? Is it wrong to have a successful family? Is it wrong to have successful children? Is it wrong for us to, to be able to enjoy a creation that is rich and bountiful for us to enjoy? You know, 
you could, there's nothing wrong with any of these things in the proper place. But you know you can want things even that are good things in ways that are inordinate. I remember talking to a lady one time who was, I was counseling. She had a bad husband. He was a mean man. He was a bad man. And uh, I knew I couldn't change him. I was trying to help her find comfort in Christ, reading to her passages and talking to her about the comforts of Christ and the ways Christ is near to us when we're hurt and brokenhearted. And she, she got upset at one point, and she slammed her fist down on my desk, and she said, I don't want a God who loves me. I want a husband who loves me. That's idolatry, isn't it? You see, if we're in a situation where there's something in our life and God is not enough for us, that if you take that away from me, then in the absence of that I can find no joy in God, then I'm worshiping and serving an idol. I've put something in the place of God. And see, one of the problems is our idols are so plausible it's not wrong to have a comfortable home or richly, nicely appointed furniture or to enjoy good meals or to provide your children with opportunities to play the piano or dance ballet or whatever. But when those things become my reason for living, when they become my source of identity, when they become the basis of my happiness and my contentment, then I have exchanged the truth for a lie and I worship and serving created things rather than the creator. And unfortunately, many times, Christian families even end up polishing one another's idols. You see, where do I want to go with this? If I help my, what I want to, I want my, excuse me, first, the Bible reveals the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the uh, word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and it's pure, it, it discerns the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. One of the reasons God's word is given to us is so we can understand our hearts. And of course, the heart is where the action is. James 4, what's the cause of fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that wage war within you? Well, we want our, for ourselves and for our children, we want to be people who are insightful about our hearts so we can pray with the psalmist in Psalm 139. Lord, search my heart, try my thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. 1986, Margie and I and our children, we took a bicycling vacation. We rode our bicycles from our homes in North, our home in northeastern Pennsylvania to Niagara Falls and back. Now, I will assume that your geography is no better than my geography of the great Northwest, and I will tell you, it was 650 miles round trip. So we rode our, we carried our tents, sleeping bags, everything on our bikes, and we rode between 50 to 80 miles every day. And the kids were into it, we were all into it, it was high adventure. You couldn't do that with teenagers if they weren't into it. And so we, you know, it was a great vacation and we, uh, I had this plan. Uh, I was going to take a picture of us at the falls, the five of us, our bicycles in front of us and the falls behind us. And uh, I was gonna send the picture to all of our friends and relatives who told us we were crazy and we could never possibly ride our bikes this far. Because they all teased us. They said, you know, when you get 100 miles from home and you're stuck, call us and we'll come and get you, you know. <laughs> so we, we uh, you know, this was going to be my uh, a postcard. I was going to turn the picture into a postcard, send it to our friends and relatives. It was our Rocky picture. You know, here we are. We made it. We're at, we're at the falls. We did it. 
So I set up the tripod. I was going to set the timer, run, and jump in the picture. Now, 1986, there were no digital cameras in 1986. You didn't have the ability to take a picture and instantly send it to 5,000 friends. I mean, it was, you know, this was back in the film days. I mean, we had a roll of film, a canister with 36 exposures in that roll. Some of you are old enough to remember these rolls of film. And, and you know, it was, uh, you know, back then, you, you know, pictures were costly. I mean, you didn't, it wasn't like today, you know, where you take pictures of food, and dumb stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> you know. In the 80s, you took pictures that were important, and you took, I mean, you would go your entire vacation with two rolls of film. You know, you only have 72 pictures for the entire two weeks I'm gone. I mean, you chose your pictures carefully. You didn't take nine pictures of the same exposure, you know. You, well, so I set up the tripod. I was going to run and jump into the picture. I was going to do the entire roll of film the same exposure. So I was going to do this 36 times. It made perfect sense to me. It didn't make sense to my 17-year-old son. So after the first couple of pictures, he started sabotaging the pictures. Just as the camera would click, he'd go, ah, he'd make a face, or he would turn a face to falls, click, we'd get the back of his head. I mean, he spoiled one picture after another after another. Oh, oh I got so angry with him. And I berated him verbally. I just, oh, it was horrible. And uh, I mean, you see what I've done. I mean, you know, we're, we're going to spend our day at the falls, and Dad just had a volcanic eruption and, you know, spewed lava all over everybody. And the whole family's under the cloud of my anger, and everyone's avoiding eye contact with me. I mean, it was just a terrible scene. So I got the family together and asked for forgiveness. I asked my son to forgive me for the things I had said to him. I asked the family to forgive me for my anger, and, and I prayed. And, but I look back at that day. 1976, and I'm shocked at my lack of insight because I, uh, I asked for forgiveness for my, uh, my words. I said, please forgive me for the things I said. I shouldn't have said those things. They were mean. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I lacked insight into this. You have more insight into the heart today than I had in 1986. Because what was motivating me why was I so angry with my son? What was that about? What are the hard attitudes behind this? I mean, certainly there was revenge, pride, incredible pride, uh, desire to be approved by other people. I mean, I wondered, our, I imagined our friends getting this postcard saying, wow, look, they made it to the falls. What an amazing family. What an incredible leader Ted Tripp must be. <laughs> How lucky to be one of his kids. You know, you see what it was about? It was about my self-aggrandizement, my pride, my desire to be admired by others. That's why I was so angry at my son, because I was building a shrine to my greatness, and he was piddling all over it. That's why I was so angry. And, and you see, it's those hard attitudes that we have to deal with. And, 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 and biblical change never takes place by simply manipulating the behavior. It doesn't happen with our kids. It doesn't happen with us. We're not going to change just because we, we tell ourselves, I've got to stop being so impatient. I've got to be nicer. I've got to be, uh, you know, not be so aggressive with others verbally. Those kinds of things don't produce lasting change. I thought I had another slide here. Lasting change happens as we help our children understand that behind, yeah, here it is, behind behind the fight over the toy, behind whatever the behavior is, is 
are attitudes of heart. And so it's attitudes of heart that must be repented of. And the cross, gospel, repentance, and faith, I've got those, in there, those symbols of the gospel to, to remind us of all that Christ has done to change us and transform us and renew us and make us people that love God and love others. And it's that kind of lasting change that will produce behavior that honors God. The heart, the heart is the heart of the problem in family life. All the conflicts, all the difficulties, all the tensions, all the things that we struggle with in our homes have their origin in the heart because the heart is a wellspring of life. Now, if I had time, and I've, I haven't managed my time well, so I've run out of time, but I think there's some things, some good questions. Do you have those in your booklets? Okay. If you want to snap that, you can, but there's a, these are good thought questions to think about uh, in order to really make application of these things to yourself. Let me just pray with you. Father, we thank you that your word gives us direction, and we pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds so that we would, would not just deal with the external behavioral things that trouble us, but that we would deal with our hearts. We pray this for Christ's glory. Amen.